0: The time to short ESG. All kidding aside, it is quite the divide we are seeing. The UN chief has slammed his delusional, quote-unquote, new fossil fuel funding. So the divide just can't get any more deeper, and it's very political, isn't it? Again, I'm joking about shorting ESG, but, you know, you almost wonder, though. I'd be curious to see what those charts look like. Now, as far as this energy situation, which, I mean, if you ask the macroeconomists what the big issue is right now, most of them, I think, would almost unanimously say inflation. But increasingly, as we've kind of gone on our little journey on this program, we could see energy as the as the main driving factor behind inflation. And yes, there's supply, there's demand and all that stuff. But as long as oil stays above $120 a barrel, I don't know how you're going to reduce your inflation. And maybe it'll happen. And maybe part of the plan is reduced demand and oil comes down. But it kind of all comes down to energy is one of the things we've kind of, I would argue, one of the things that we've determined over the course of this program in the recent, you know, 20 episodes. So that being said, I mean, this whole idea of energy and how to get it and do we need to drill is becoming a bigger and bigger issue. I mean, and I think some of the fossil fuel people who some of them are very environmental. I mean, just like the mining industry, a lot has changed in the last 15 years and Yes we all want an environmental world but we have to give proper credit where credit is due in the resource extraction industries yes even Exxon has done its part and it's not to say that these you know companies are not emitting anything but you know the resource extraction industries mining and energy have done A lot. And it's time that we recognize that. And I think some of the fossil fuel people who are in that area are a little taken aback at, you know, when they see the U.N. chief, Secretary General Antonio Guterres, saying that it's delusional to put more funding into fossil fuel. This is the U.N. secretary general. And I might add, like, is this guy elected? Like, by who? By other bureaucrats? Like, so that's another thing. And so I think this, I, I think some fossil fuel people are taken aback that even at this point, again, we're looking at two euro per liter gasoline, say, here in Berlin. And that's equivalent to $3 a liter. And that's at $120 per barrel oil. What happens if we get $150 a barrel oil or $200 a barrel oil and we're still going to slam any idea of drilling for more fossil fuels as delusional? Uh, You know, like, yes, we have to do what we can for the environment, but we cannot be extremists about this. And as a lot of people will point out... How are we going to make this transition without using a heck of a lot of oil? So it's not like you can just magically buy, you know, as I thought uh, James Paplava on Financial Sense this weekend put it perfectly, you know, a lot of these officials, bureaucrats, people who've been, you know, working in offices their entire lives, nothing against that. I'm kind of one of those people to a large degree. They are trying to make an energy transition. The realest of real things by mandate. And it just doesn't work that way. And we're, we just are in a, you know, to use an analogy, we're in a car and we just hit a major bump in the road and we are not slowing down and going, oh, were we going too fast? Should we change course? Instead, we're saying the problem is, is we're not going fast enough. We need to go faster down this crazy road. At least, according to Secretary General Antonio Guterres, and he's saying for us to even slow down would be delusional. We need to speed up. So anyways, final little thought on this. Again, we were mentioning this guy, like, I mean, he's probably elected by the UN, which is probably a bunch of ambassadors and i'm all for the u.n i think you know it's a sad state of affairs as we mentioned with jeffrey christian when to say that the blue helmets would come rushing to the rescue in somewhere like ukraine it's a sad state of affairs that that's like not even really a serious option and when i grew up that was kind of a thing that you know the blue helmets the u.n blue helmets were kind of a beautiful dream that kind of disappeared But where I'm going with this is, I think, as far as this elected versus unelected, I think, you know, to to quote a Sarah Palin motto, and I wasn't a Sarah Palin fan, that's for sure, but drill, baby, drill is, I think, the path to election. If you're a politician, just what's your view on the housing market? Drill, baby, drill. What's your view... On the business environment, drill, baby, drill. How do you feel about taxation? Drill, baby, drill. That's all you need to say. And I think you will get a, the electorate will take the wheel from Antonio Guterres and these people who are saying, and everybody who's saying, we need to stop investing in fossil fuels and these extractive industries. This is exactly what got us here. To editorialize, feel free to disagree. I mean, I am a Platonist at heart, and which means I don't feel like I have a monopoly on the truth here. And so it's through the clash of ideas, two people with good intent, having a conversation, trying to get to the truth is as close as we're going to get here. So feel free to leave a comment if you disagree. Maybe we even put you on the program So we have a wonderful show lined up for you today, and now it's PDAC week. It started, I believe, on Saturday, and it's funny. I got an email from a listener saying, you know, this is the greatest. PDAC should always be in June. The outdoor cafes and bars and restaurants are full. This is so much better. So hi to everyone at PDAC. I imagine that there must be just a little bit more fizz in your champagne this time around. A little more spring in your step at this resource conference. Yeah, and we have great coverage at the Northern Miners. Stop by our booth. You can probably pick up a free copy throughout the convention of our mega PDAC issue. So do check that out. Alicia Hyatt, editor in chief, did a fabulous job. We're going to get her on the program sometime soon here. Coming up this program, though, we have. Former chair and CEO of the Ontario Securities Commission, Maureen Jensen, and she gives a very, I would call it pragmatic interview with Northern Miner Senior Reporter Henry Lazenby at the recently passed Global Mining Symposium. And yeah, I mean, I think Maureen, it seems like a very pragmatic individual, helped create the N and the NI forty three one oh one standard. She talks about all sorts of interesting things. Uh, she does talk about the nature of the exchange. and I mean, people find the Ontario Securities Commission interesting because some people talk about it as a kind of uh, petri dish for the SEC. Say, like, if there's going to be a Bitcoin ETF, well, let's do it in Canada first and see how it works. And if it's good, then maybe we can use it in in the U.S. This kind of thing. That's how some people view the Ontario Securities Commission, is a kind of uh, proto-SEC, for lack of a better term. And so she used to be the chair and CEO. And she's got a lot of interesting things to say about a lot of different issues. She sees more conflict coming. And as far as the screen transition, she's saying 2030 is a no-go. It's going to be 2050 at best. And you know, Maureen has a career in mining. So I think she probably has a clue as to what she's talking about. So you wonder where these people, like Antonio Guterres, uh, the UN Secretary General, like, who is he talking to? Who is delusional here, Mr. Guterres? Who is the delusional person here? And I am simply asking a question. You know, I leave it to the listener to answer that. So we have... Maureen Jensen, coming up as our feature content. It's an excellent interview. Good job, Henry. And coming up, we have Brian McEwen, Vice President of Exploration and Development for Golden Arrow Resources. And he is going to be in this week's CEO spotlight. I've been seeing stories about Golden Arrow for years, so it's really interesting to meet one of the team members. And again, sponsored by the Grosso Group. So thank you. For sponsoring this week's episode, Grosso Group, they have one more coming up next week with Blue Sky Uranium, which also should be very interesting for all you uranium files out there. So with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including... Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to Brian McEwen, VP of Exploration and Development at Golden Arrow. Joining me today, I am very pleased to welcome Brian McEwen, Vice President of Exploration and Development for Golden Arrow. Brian, welcome to this week's CEO Spotlight.
1: Very happy to be here, Adrian. Thank you.
0: Well, it's Great to have you. And so tell us about Golden Arrow. I've been seeing stories about Golden Arrow in the northern minor and just around. Tell us about the company. What are you guys up to? It'd
1: be My pleasure, Adrian. Uh, Golden Arrow is an exploration company that's been around since uh, early 90s. We started in, in Argentina in 1993 under the direction of our president CEO and chairman Joe Grosso and have been, and been working there ever since. The company as a whole has had a lot of successes. We've had Four discoveries, if we include uh, the one recently announced by our sister company, uh, Blue Sky Uranium. And our last project that uh, we monetized was a Chinchillas silver project in, in northern Argentina. And that was a, a very successful project for us, Adrian, because it was something that we took from drill holes into the ground through to feasibility. And then we sold it. And that mine is now in production. Eight years from drill holes to production is is a pretty impressive track record. And through that deal... In the end, we ended up selling our portion of that to Silver Standard to SSR Mining now, and that loaded up the coffers, so gave us a lot of money to go shopping for a more advanced project. And over the period of COVID and all those things, the timing was just not that good for us as far as those things go. But we were very, very busy, and we kicked the tires in a lot of projects in different countries. We were recently in in Paraguay and and, and, uh, we went into Chile looking for a more advanced project and we came across an opportunity that I really would like to focus on and that was our acquisition of the San Pietro copper gold
0: project near Copiapó. It sounds like you guys are very experienced or at least I mean like you're saying since the early 90s if I heard you right there so that's pretty cool. So tell us then what did you find in Chile?
1: Yeah, like I said, we looked at a, a bunch of different projects. We were already working in and around the, the Copio, Po area, and then we had a call that there was a, a property that was uh, available. It was a project that Sumitomo had had. To, they'd had it since uh, 2008. They hadn't done any work on it since 2013, and they decided they wanted to get rid of it. So we we started going through a process, and we got a call from, from Sumitomo saying, you know, in fact, we want this off the books by March of next year. And and, and so we're going to have a closed bid on it. Or you want to bid? So, you know, we worked on the um, our due diligence over over Christmas and whatever and got together and we put in a bid and we were successful. And we're very happy about that because as we went through the due diligence, you know, the, the company had been focused on evaluating this as a, a copper only player. It, it appears from what we, we could find. they They drilled 30,000 meters all in one area. They were getting some Pretty low-grade copper, nothing to get really super excited about, and there was some low-grade gold and, and stuff, and, and then and, and then it, it was parked. When we went in and we looked at the, the, the project, we looked at the project immediately to the east, which is the Santa Domingo mine that's being developed by Capstone. And then on the west of us is the Manto Verde mine, which is owned now by, by Capstone. So we've actually got 18,000 hectares between the two mines and uh, the grades that we were seeing in the in the drill holes at San Pietro were very similar to the grades that they were mining at, uh, or planned to be mining at Santo Domingo. What was really interesting was that the, the difference the cobalt made in the in the process at Santo Domingo. In fact, they went back and redid the feasibility with the cobalt circuits, recovering the cobalt, and now that project's uh, being developed and it's being built as a copper cobalt project. And when I come over and look at our project at San Pietro, ah, we've got some pretty high cobalt grades, actually. The Drills show it to be some very, very good grades. And with cobalt trading right now at, you know, $46 a, a pound, it adds a significant component to the to the economics. And so we started looking at these things and putting together and we said, well, you know, we've got something pretty significant here. Not only on the copper gold resource, but we went back in and we started to play with the cobalt numbers and even the iron numbers. The iron numbers had been ignored, so we've got this iron oxide copper gold project, this IOCG project with high cobalt grades, and we're sitting in the middle of um, between an operating mine and a and a mine that's being developed, which already has about a billion tons on the books, and and we're right right in the middle of that. And um, you look at Copiapó is uh, is probably one of the best mining destinations there, there is in the world. I mean we've got world class sized mines there Candelaria the Manto Verde and, and and others were very close to the coast you've got ports you've got a desalination plant you've got concentrate pipelines you've got the power goes right over our property so when you when you think about your kind of location 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 this is, it doesn't get better than this and then we just happened to be in the right place at the right time when, you know, we, this, this project came available to us. Uh, so we're, we're very excited to, to get on the ground. We've just hired uh, some team members and, and get going on that project. But uh, very excited to get going on that. We, we re- really think this is, a, this, is a, this is a good one.
0: It sounds like it's full of potential. And my favorite mining word is probably closeology And it sounds like you got the closeology going on. Okay, so you recently sealed the deal on this then, and it sounds like you've done some drilling. We have not
1: done any drilling. We inherited a database of about 30,000 meters of drilling and a lot of geophysics. I mean, Sumitomo and, and tech, they they did they gathered a lot of information. The database is really good place for us to jump in and, and start. Uh, didn't mean to cut you off, sorry.
0: No, not at all. Thank you for clearing that up. In a sense, that's why I say these things, just so we can be super clear on on what the situation is. So so then I was about to ask you then, so where are you then on this project? In a sense, what's coming up? And I guess, w- what's coming up in the near term? And then I guess more to the mid to long term, like where is this going?
1: Well, a project this size and, and what we're planning to do requires a fair bit of infrastructure. So we've had to hire some Chilean geologists and project managers and and vehicles. And so we're we're going through all that logistics stuff right now. We found some inconsistencies in the in the drilling and some things that might have been missed in the GF. So we want to go back and make sure we understand every single thing about the, the database. Once we 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 do that and collect the surface information that we're we're going to be delineating drill targets. And there is an area they calculated a resource in, in the past that it's not 4310 and I prefer not to talk about it, but we want to prove up that that resource. We want to be able to see where what else we can add in, in other areas. And, you know, we're just pedal to the metal right now to get going on, on here. And we're, you know, on the ground there now and we should be able to have pretty regular flow of information coming up in the, in the next few weeks and then we'll go from there.
0: Right. So I guess the first thing is kind of consolidate all the data and then you're hiring some people. And are you going to drill? I, I assume. We've actually already got a, a 40,000 meter drill program that's been approved by
1: the board and that we've already got the money to pay for that. And, you know, that'll be to delineate the resource in the on the eastern side near the Santa Domingo mine and to check out all, all these other areas where there's, there's just so much smoke. I think that we can put together something significant.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's just so much excitement in the natural resource space right now because it does seem like there's just not enough to go around. And for you guys to get a deal like this in this kind of environment really is... I don't know if coup is the right word, but it's uh, it's a pretty amazing thing. Now, have you guys, I mean, again, you've been around for a while. You sold, I think, a previous project you're saying to Silver Standard. Are you at the point where you've been thinking of what an exit looks like? Do you build the mine? Do you JV it? Or are you simply like one step at a time? Let's see how great this is.
1: It's an excellent question. What we want to do is is try to repeat the success we had at Shinchius, at where we went in and we, we've got a very, very strong technical group, is to be able to go in there, discover and prove up something significant and then continually add value. We're very strong in the engineering side and have people take notice. And then we're going to keep barging ahead. But you know, we're a junior company. We We prefer to be able to sell that or have some kind of a streaming thing or joint venture or or something, bring someone else with deeper pockets. But I I know for a fact that we're already getting a lot of attention from people, from the questions
0: I get asked. So I think there'll be a few people watching us. Okay, excellent. So just in closing here, and you probably already answered this somewhat, but what's the takeaway for investors?
1: Well, I think the takeaway for for investors is, you know, this is a group uh, that's been around for a, a fairly long time, a good solid reputation. They've done this before. We've got reconciled experiences strong technical people business people uh m a people you know we're we're a little bit different than a lot of junior companies that way we've got money in the bank so we're not going to be out raising money and and diluting the shareholders so we've got money to go forward and we've got you know a great project and and we've spoken all about san pietro and the path that that's on but we've we've also got other projects we've got um other things that we're looking at that are you know we're still doing but we're just trying to keep our focus on our our flagship project and we have this other value stream i, I call it and, and because we have this large portfolio of projects in in argentina we've been joint venturing those with other companies so we've joint ventured three of those projects right now and that's other people spending money on our projects that we will get you know the benefit if anything is discovered and the one we announced last week has really been getting a lot of attention we signed a deal with the company for our magote project magote project is it it, it borders on uh Philo Mining's Philadelphia del Sol project. It's immediately to the, I think it's to the north of it. And, uh, you know, so the company that we signed to deal with with that are planning to drill there. So watch what happens there. So I think from
0: a company point of view, there's, there's lots to watch and
1: it's a good investment. There's
0: lots to get excited about. Brian McEwen, Vice President of Exploration and Development at Golden Arrow. Thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. Adrian, my pleasure. Thank you. And thank you once again to Golden Arrow Resources. You can find them at goldenarrowresources.com. And thank you to the Grosso Group for sponsoring this week's episode. And turning to the website, Pierre Lassonde at the Mining Legends Speaker Series says copper will be more crucial than lithium. And this is something I have heard. I don't know if you heard that podcast on Odd Lots. It's about three weeks ago on copper. Listen to it after this podcast. It is a shocking <laughs> a shockingly bullish case on copper. And basically one of the main guys at Goldman Sachs says we're gonna run out of copper, you know, deficits in a couple of years here. So turning to our story, the first of two articles here on the Mining Legends series, and we have one of them here, and I just wanted to Talk a little bit about what he was saying about the green transition. So this is about two-thirds down the article. Read the whole thing on northernminer.com. It looks like a great event, and we have some great pictures there too. Talking about the future of the sector, Lasson believes it will be a while before the world can truly transition away from oil and gas. Quote, that little cubic centimeter of oil is the most powerful energy-intensive unit cubic we have today. And until we come up with something better than that, we are not going to move away. It's that simple. Will someone get the Secretary General of the UN on the phone? I think he might find that useful. Lassonde is, however, hopeful that the world will depend on electricity for 75% of its energy use, up from 25% today by 2070. So just to rephrase that. So 25% of the world's energy is electricity. And that's today. In 2070, basically 50 years from now, LaSonde expects that to be 75% of the world's energy. So it's quite interesting to get these actual natural resource people commenting on how quickly they think this can be done. And it doesn't sound like this can be done overnight. And that's why he believes that finding copper-gold deposits is going to be the next big thing. When you look at the greenification of the world, it's all about electricity. And that's where we're going to need a lot of copper. And it doesn't exist. We haven't found it. The mines are not in production, he said. In terms of the next 20 to 40 years, copper and gold are going to be the place to be. It's hard to disagree, isn't it? While the increase in demand for electric vehicles has pushed the prices of battery metals upward, Lasson doesn't expect the, quote, billions of cars on the road right now, end quote, to switch immediately to EVs. So he has doubts about investing in lithium metal royalties, quote, The fundamental question that we have is, how far is the lithium battery going to get us? Because as it is right now, it's not good enough. If you own an electric car and you try to go to your cottage round trip, you can't do it. You're going to suffer from range anxiety. But we like copper because no matter what, that's part of the green revolution. So read the entire article. It's a great one by Naimul Karim on northernminer.com. Continuing on, big story. Linus Rare Earths has been awarded a $120 million Department of Defense contract to build commercial heavy rare earths facility in the United States. So, you know, back to geopolitics, it's hard to get away from this. This is by a staff writer from mining.com. Australia's Linus Rare Earths announced Monday that its wholly owned subsidiary, Linus USA, has signed a follow-on contract for approximately $120 million with the U.S. Department of Defense to establish a first-of-its-kind commercial heavy rare earth separation facility in the United States. The contract enables Linus to establish an operating footprint in the U.S., including the production of separated heavy rare earth elements... The U.S. industry will secure access to domestically produced heavy rare earths which cannot be sourced today and which are essential to the development of a supply chain for future-facing industries, including electric vehicles, wind turbines, and electronics, and probably smart bombs, jet F-35s, and drones, and whatever else. I mean... I don't know if the DOD is overly concerned about wind turbines and electronics. Linus worked with the DOD on the phase one contract for a US based heavy rare earth separation facility announced July 2020 and said it has now reached agreement for a full-scale commercial heavy rare earth facility. I mean, they're sure taking their sweet time, aren't they? I mean that's almost two years to reach an agreement. I guess they're feeling the urgency now. It's probably something that was on the table. And now with tensions with now China ramping up, it's probably getting fast-tracked now and they probably have the attention of the decision-makers. So... And finally, the facility is expected to be located within, within an existing industrial area on the Gulf Coast of the state of Texas and targeted to be operational in financial year 2025. That seems extremely fast. So they have decided they need this immediately. Like in building these kind of facilities, to have that done in three years and operational, to me, that is like super fast track. And Linus CEO Amanda Lacaze said in a media statement, quote, The development of a U.S. heavy rare earth separation facility is an important part of our accelerated growth plan. And we look forward to not only meeting the rare earth needs of the U.S. government, but also reinvigorating the local rare earths market. This includes working to develop the rare earth supply chain and value added activities. The DOD's decision to fully fund the construction of the heavy rare earths facility demonstrates the priority that the U.S. government is placing on ensuring that supply chains for these critical materials are resilient and environmentally responsible. So it is interesting, though, because probably the reason this took so long to get accepted were probably environmental reasons and just as we were saying at the top of the program as these shortages become acute you're gonna see ESG take a back seat is kind of I think what we're gonna see here and I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing I'm just like trying to help us understand what's probably gonna start happening just with oil like all of a sudden I think the resistance to drilling for oil is gonna fall to the wayside by people paying you know 3 to $5 a liter, which is what we're looking at here. Moving on to our next story, copper's outlook under threat as economic risks pile up. And this is by Bloomberg News via mining.com. Copper is under assault from various risks that threaten to undermine the prospects of the key metal needed to wean the world off of fossil fuels, according to CRU Group's Vanessa Davidson. Threats include the possibility of lower GDP or industrial production triggered by geopolitical risks, high inflation becoming more embedded in the economy, or the effects of COVID-19 lasting longer than anticipated. And those numbers are starting to go up too. Other near-term risks include slower-than-expected take-up of green technology, more scrap availability, as well as substitution and reduced use of the industrial metal. Copper fell as much as 2.3% Monday on the LME, the most in a month as commodities tumbled alongside U.S. equities on increasing worries that Federal Reserve interest rates will plunge the economy into recession. The red metal is down 4.4% for the year after soaring more than 25% in the previous two years. So not investment advice, but from a financial speculator perspective, if we get a big drop here, like if we get a big deflationary wave, you know, maybe some kind of economic crisis, That could be the buying opportunity of a lifetime in things like copper. Not financial advice. Maybe it all drops to the floor forever. But the setup here is starting to look pretty interesting from an investment perspective. And here we go again. Lithium supply struggles to keep up with demand. New report is by Henry Lazenby. While prices for battery-making products such as lithium spodumene, carbonate, and hydroxide have rallied by 1,553%, 1,057%, and 744%, respectively, since mid-2020, the lithium market will struggle to remain balanced in the medium term, B of A says in a new research note. According to the bank, the upward pressure has been driven by a confluence of factors, including supercharged demand growth, Expanding at twice the clip of supply in 2021, the bank's global commodity research team led by strategist Michael Widmer said the solid fundamental backdrop had been heavily influenced by exponential growth in electric vehicle production, which looks unlikely to change. And yeah, I would assume that electric vehicles are now, I could see them starting to outsell gasoline-fueled vehicles if these gas prices keep up. I don't know if it's any cheaper, though. Like, I don't have an electric car. I don't know what that would be like. I don't have any car, for that matter. That's the beauty of living in Berlin. You don't really need one. But I wonder just how much it costs for the power now. I mean, especially in Europe, where you're paying so much. I mean, is it cheaper to get an electric car? I don't know. So I just bring up these questions. And we have a quote from Widmer, quote, This matters because the lithium market is still quite small, making it difficult to absorb the massive demand pull for tonnages. Even with the base effects now starting to kick in, lithium demand growth rates are set to remain above 20% until 2025. And so there is a whole lot more in this article. So if you're a lithium file, do check out this. And just a couple more headlines here. E3 lithium to drill Alberta's first brine production well. And these guys are very interesting. This is by Jackson Chen. E3 lithium is really just pushing this technology i mean it looks like they're producing lithium in a kind of original way it says here e3 lithium has been granted a license for the first brine production well in alberta brine production well so it's almost like drilling for oil the well will be drilled in the company's clearwater project area east of the town of olds for the purpose of evaluating its lithium resource drilling is expected to begin before the end of this month and it's targeted for completion by mid-July, so they're moving very fast. According to E3, an innovator of the direct lithium extraction technology, the brine production well will provide critical data such as brine chemistry, lithium concentrations, and reservoir characteristics. It plans to use the data collected to support the upgrade of its resources to the indicated and measured category, which will be the basis for the pre-feasibility study. And... We have a quote from Chris Dornbos, CEO of E3 Lithium. Quote for our company, this represents the next step in our path to commercialization and producing high-quality, EV-ready lithium. So, very interesting stuff going on over there. And another story, Valet plans to produce nickel sulfate in Canada. This is by Naimul Karim. Valet, the world's top nickel and iron ore producer, has completed a pre-feasibility study for its proposed nickel sulfate facility in Bacon cool Quebec. The company said on June 9th, the facility is expected to process 25,000 tons of nickel into nickel sulfate annually to supply the lithium-ion battery market for electric vehicles. So this whole EV narrative has just been supercharged. It's everywhere. And we have a quote from Executive Vice President of Valley Base Metals, Deshni Naidu. This is a key validation for a project that offers both diversified sales and an accelerated entry point into North America's burgeoning electric vehicle supply chain. So we're starting to see in mining news how the supply chain is starting to get re-established and remade. Because, of course, mining, I mean, it's probably right at the beginning of so many supply chains. And final headline, fireweed zinc to acquire Mactung tungsten site in Northwest Territories for $15 million dollars. So, just a little MA in the Yukon there for a tungsten project. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. And turning to metal prices, something we haven't talked about is what's happening in bonds. If I just take a look here, uh, apparently there are some very big movements that are happening in the bond market. You're hearing about the two-year bond making some big moves. Yield yield curve inversions. Like if I look at the ten-year bond, it's at 3.31 percent, and last week it was at 3.02. So that is almost up 0.3%. In other words, 10% since we last checked a week ago. So this is also the highest that we have here since we started recording it maybe, you know, three quarters of a year ago. Back when it was at like one and a half, 1.2%, 1.1. We we're at 1.19, you know, and now we're at 33 So big moves in the bond market. I guess inflation expectations are starting to take hold on the 10-year bond there. So turning to our metals now, and we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. On June 14th, gold is trading at $1,823.96 per ounce That is $25 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $21.17 per ounce. That is $0.85 lower than last week. Platinum is trading at $940.26 per ounce. That is $69 lower than last week. And palladium is trading at $1,811.60 per ounce. That is $203 lower than last week. So... Bit of a move lower in precious metals. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is $0.04 higher at $4.33 per pound. Aluminum is a penny lower at $1.22 per pound. Lead is a penny higher at $0.98 per pound. Nickel is $0.06 lower at $12.51 per pound. Tin is $0.59 higher at $16.58 per pound. Cobalt is at $32.77 per pound. That is $0.51 cents lower than last week. And zinc is also lower at $1.70 per pound. That is $0.07 cents lower than last week. So zooming out, it would seem to me that the scare in the market that we saw yesterday is taking the wind out of the sales of the commodities trade. And so people, I think, are really getting worried about this demand destruction, a deflationary wave coming And that's what I see happening here. And so basically, the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. Everything gets sold off. And that seems to be what we're seeing here. I mean, really, the standout for me was actually 10, which was up 59 cents, despite all of the other metals almost being down. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Maureen Jensen, former chair and CEO of the Ontario Securities Commission. She was born in Winnipeg and earned her BSc in geology in 1979. She is best known as the first female to head the Ontario Securities Commission, where she championed policies to improve investor protection and encourage diversity for executives and directors of public companies. Yeah, and Maureen has a ton of interesting things to say. I thought one of the more interesting takeaways was avoid politics in the boardroom. Just, you know, kind of an obvious thing to say, but maybe not so obvious if you've never kind of been a board member. So I thought that was quite interesting. Anyway, she was interviewed by Henry Lazenby at the Global Mining Symposium. I hope you enjoy it. And I will see you on the other side.
2: Great pleasure to introduce our featured presentation today with Maureen Jensen. Maureen attended the University of Toronto where she earned a BSc in geology in 1979. She is perhaps best known for her role as the first female to head the Ontario Securities Commission where she championed policies to improve investor protection and encourage diversity for executives and directors of public companies. Before joining the OSC, Jensen served as the Senior Vice President for Surveillance and Compliance at IROC and President at Market Regulation Services. She also held senior positions at the Toronto Stock Exchange, including Director of Mining Services during the aftermath of the bre X scandal. Interestingly, she was a TSX member of the Mining Standards Task Force that laid the groundwork for National Instrument forty three one oh one. That standard obviously became a globally recognized disclosure standard for mining projects. We'll leave uh, the, her long list of accomplishments at that, but uh, there is uh, certainly, these are not uh, the only in her distinguished and successful career. Marine has received broad public and industry recognition for her many achievements, including being inducted into the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame later this year. Welcome, Maureen. It's a great pleasure to have you join us today.
3: Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me.
2: All right. Well then, so let's jump right into it. I, I guess from your varied and successful career, it is clear that you can opine on a broad spectrum of mining industry themes. Before we get to that, you know, take a moment to reflect on your career. What would you say were some of the key highlights uh, from your point of view?
3: Well, if I start right at the beginning, I grew up in mining towns everywhere between Winnipeg and Sudbury, and uh, my dad was a mining engineer. And when I went to university, I, uh, I decided I'd take a, a geology course. And uh, by Christmas time, I was—that was it—I was, it. was going to be a geologist. And my mother cried for the rest of the four years. She wanted me to be a doctor, of course. But I, I would say that I started out in uh, exploration, and I had some incredible mentors. I was lucky enough in the mid-70s to have a, a female boss in the bush camp that I was working in with a lot of women. And so I never thought that I couldn't do anything. But, you know, it was tough for women at the beginning. But let's say I went, uh, I worked underground as a beach geologist and then as a mine geologist and then chief mine geologist. I worked with a mining contractor, so I've done uh, all kinds of uh, things like um, you know, raises and drifts and worked uh, underground. I've worked in a uh, in excavating a large hydro tunnel. Uh, mm. I worked all over the, uh, North America and Central America and South Africa. And I will say that mining people are just amazing. You know, Anthony was just talking about mining geeks. Mm. Well, that's, that's what happened in our family. I'm married to a mining engineer. And at some point, our kids said, mom and dad, no more mines. We're not going on mining holidays anymore so uh, (laughs) yeah i holidays yeah Yeah. and then of course we went through briette yeah and uh i just i thought it was really time that we had a better mining standard in canada and so started working on that and that led me to looking at regulations of all kinds and uh led me to being in in the financial business for over 20 years Mm. so it's been it's been quite a ride but I've never left my mining roots. I've always advocated for mining because it is the best business in the world.
2: Right, right. Well, uh, with that, we can conclude this conversation, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's truly a fascinating history. Thank you very much. Um, so it was also recently announced, as we've mentioned several times by now, that you will be inducted into the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame in August. Perhaps, you know, from your personal perspective, again, you know, what does it really mean to become an inductee? Is this like the the icing on top of everything that you've been working towards in your life or or, what's your take on it?
3: Well, first of all, I didn't believe it when when I got the notice. I'm just, if you look at that incredible list of people who are in the Mining Hall of Fame, I thought, no, you know, I haven't found a mine, but I love this business. And for me, this is like getting an Oscar. This is it, right? I will say that it's absolutely thrilling that the Mining Hall of Fame is looking broader than simply you know, these incredible people who find mines and discover new processes. Mining is a, is a life, it's, mm-hmm. it's a calling. And now what we're seeing are more people who have really changed rules and made certain that mining is part of the Canadian lifestyle. And I'm, I'm just thrilled to be recognized. I really can't believe it. I don't know what I'm gonna say when I get up there, when I see all of those amazing people. But uh, it's uh, it's a true honor.
2: Wonderful. Well, congratulations once more. All right, let's get into the more difficult part of this conversation. <laughs> so obviously, as we've heard, uh, you've been an advocate for innovation in the capital markets, basically from the outset. What would you say are some of your key thoughts on where the capital market industry trends and Uh, the status of innovation are at at the moment, you know, and and how they relate to mining?
3: So the financial industry is going through a huge change. And this change is, it's the same type of uh, magnitude of change as when we went to the internal combustion engine from Horses. Everything is digital today, obviously. There's only really one or two exchanges that still have open outcry floors in North America. Everything has gone digital. But even more important than that, the financial markets have gone global. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge change. No longer are regional exchanges that important. Most large companies are now multi-listed in various jurisdictions. Some of them even listed enough to trade almost 24 hours a day. So that is quite different. What we're seeing today is obviously digital finance, the uh, inclusion now of crypto, Most regulators are now looking at crypto assets of all kinds, including non-fungible tokens, all kinds of things, so that they can be listed and traded on an exchange. Fractional shares has turned into a large business. And uh, the rise of sustainable investing, obviously, is is another one. Also, the fact that the largest institutional shareholders, while they have always driven markets, they are now, some of them, like Vanguard and BlackRock, are, and others are so large that they often have 20, 30, 40% of any fund.
4: Mm.
3: And that is enormous. That is going to change the world. We're also seeing new kinds of exchanges. I think you had Neil on the Northern Miner, the, the Global Mining Symposium last time or the time before. And so what we're seeing there is a change in the, the type of exchanges. The listing criteria and the amount of information that you can collect on a daily basis. You can set up your own triggers on some of those exchanges. So, uh, and they're constantly looking for for new things. So, I will, you know, you'll have different types of funds on different types of exchanges. So, I think that competition is very good. Not only that, in North America, what you're seeing are a huge amount of companies that are focused. Their business is focused on collecting as much capital market uh, traffic as possible, and then trading it internally in their books and then moving it to the exchange. So the entire platform has changed. And the other thing is surveillance obviously has caught up to all of this. And now a lot of surveillance is done with AI and Mm. algorithms. Mm. So it's a different world and it's a world that uh, mining is very involved with. And so people will see, Mining shares, I know at the beginning when we started looking at these multiple markets, people were saying, how are these mining securities moving so quickly and how come so much is trading? It was because of those third-party wholesalers. They were moving the markets themselves with their algorithm.
2: Okay, so basically all of the above uh, mentioned ways of how the markets are innovating. So, from mm-hmm. a regulatory standpoint, I'm sure you've got your hands full. Uh, would you say today's uh, securities regulators can keep up with the brisk pace of innovation, given the advent of cryptos and non, uh, you know, uh, fungible uh, tokens, right. and um, you know, also the variety of new financial products?
3: Right. Well, um, I would say to you that yes, I think securities regulators can keep up. They themselves are now using AI in in some of their own work. I would say that you don't want your regulators out in front of the innovation. You want them to understand the innovation before they start making rules, because that's where mistakes happen. So, one of the things that I'll give you an example the OSC is doing is they now have a lab. So, this test lab that they've put up, we had one while I was there where we were bringing in people and helping them uh, get crypto uh, listed to, to bring them in to understand how you could use a blockchain, how you could use crypto assets. Now they're actually bringing in AI uh, products that businesses and investors can use to trade, and they're mm-hmm. testing them themselves. So I think, I think they are keeping up. If you imagine back just even four or five years ago, before uh, you had cannabis uh, shares listed, they were quick first in the world to have a, a a crypto disclosure regime put in place. We did the same thing with crypto, started looking at the exchanges that were trading them and trying to license them so that they would do it appropriately. Obviously, some didn't get licensed and they blew up. <laughs> mm,
4: mm,
2: mm. Well, uh, you mentioned uh, previously, you know, when we were kind of preparing for this session, you know, the Quadriga scandal also, that was like in recent memory one of the more egregious cases where the regulatory, you know, uh, systems didn't catch it in time. Uh, do you have any, you know, insights into that scandal and and what transpired?
3: Well, yeah. At the time, the OSC did release a public report on their investigation there. So that was the time, right at the beginning, when they were not regulated at all. And uh, that particular one uh, was in BC, and they didn't. They actually published that they didn't want to regulate. Crypto uh, currency exchanges but the issue there is not whether or not it was regulated the point was the people that owned that and particularly the one principal he was just using other people's assets to trade and he trade traded off of his own exchange onto other exchanges and he lost money mm. so basically it, that was just crime
2: right well then maybe uh you know uh... Talking about the crimes that you were fighting during your time at the OSC, you know, perhaps regale us with one of the most egregious cases you had to deal with, and uh, <laughs> I'm guessing it's probably going to be BREX, right? But uh, maybe there's something else you can, you know, throw our way.
3: Yeah, well, I wasn't there during BREX. Uh, I was at the exchange uh, as, as trying to help sort out the mess after Brexit. The issue is that every time there's a market downturn. Let me tell you that there is, there's a group of people who are just fraud artists and they will, so if there's a downturn in mining, they will gravitate to a mining shells, and they'll start using them for other things. So there's lots of egregious things to talk about, but let me just talk about one that is really mining related and it's, it's not the, the most egregious, but it, it's a good example of what not to do about that. Yep. So this this is Katanga. Katanga ended up paying something like 35 million dollars in fines for what they did. And essentially, Katanga was a uh, a small company that that Glencore had vended in uh, a property in the DRC, and it was obviously a cobalt and property, right? Mm-hmm. And what happened was uh, their disclosures started looking odd, and after an investigation. They were charged with misleading disclosure, not only on their financial disclosure, but their operational disclosure and their salary disclosure over a two-year period. And they had inflated their operational activities and uh, their production and uh, deflated it in another year. They had independent directors who were actually sidelined, and the Glencore directors were actually running the company without telling the independent directors, what was going on. And uh, on top of it, they were being investigated for bribery and they never disclosed it. Mm. And so here is a a good example of uh, a company who raised a significant amount of capital in the Canadian capital market, but it was being run as if it was a private company within Glencore. And this is something that a lot of small companies face when they have a very significant shareholder. Now, this shareholder overreached dramatically, obviously, uh, and did the wrong thing. But many small companies face this when you have a significant shareholder. So be Mm -hmm. careful, fully disclose. And even if The disclosure is uncomfortable for your main shareholder it's something that you must do
2: yeah yeah all right well thank you very much for those insights okay let's switch gears a little uh drawing on your varied boardroom experience you have encountered working you know with people in different settings in australia south africa the usa and of course canada how does one effectively overcome cultural barriers to you know effective mining administration
3: Well, I'll start. The first thing is don't talk politics in the boardroom. That's bad. (laughs) But uh, so one of the things that I've found, um, and I've been sitting on boards now for uh, almost 30 years. And one of the things that it is absolutely important to have are different voices around the table with different experiences and different backgrounds. Uh, You never know where your next big risk is coming from. And certainly today, we know that there are a lot of big risks out there. The worst travesty, I would say, is a wonderfully operating company that hits a risk and they take the wrong decision because everyone in the boardroom has the same view. Mm. So I think broad experience is is really important. You know, some of the, um, I'll just give you one from the headlines in the last few years. Uh, Theranos. that's a good, fake it till you make it, right? They pretended that they had something. And yet everybody on their board, none of them had any pharmaceutical or scientific experience. They were all ex-government people. Another good one is Equifax. Do you remember when Equifax lost all of that data?
4: Yes.
3: Um, and uh, you know, it, it, they lost the financial data of over 40% of US citizens. And on that board, they did not have a single IT person that knew anything about privacy or data protection, or IT. Mm. So there's a good example, you know, two good examples of what you really need. You need to, you think about where mining is going in the next decade or so. We're going to have a lot of ESG oversight. So you need people who, uh, and, and it's a digital world and it's a global world. So if you're doing business in Chile, you should kind of have somebody that understands that world if you are doing you know your supply chain is coming out of for example china you should understand what's going on there you know there there's just some terrible examples where where companies have just not understood what they were moving into and i will tell you right now certainly in the financial world if you don't have somebody on your board that understands ai and digital finance you're in trouble so i would just say to everyone understand your risk, understand your technology and understand the changes you need to make in the next decade and make sure you have some board members that do that.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, keeping it around the uh, boardroom table, you know, have you seen more diversity creep into executive circles or uh, how would you gauge boardroom diversity in, in mining today? Do you think the laggards are perhaps missing out on opportunities?
3: Well, I, I think I think they are. What I'm finding, well, now the the data shows that about a third of board seats are held by women, but almost all of them are old white women like me. And so uh, we're starting to see more and more diversity come into the boardroom. I I would say to you that uh, some of the biggest diversity that I've seen has come in through IT experience. And because many uh, IT folks have come from other places and uh, they're usually younger. And so it's a more diverse workforce. I would say that still in mining, obviously at the CEO and senior executive level, there's few women, but that's also changing. And part of that is the younger boomers. There were more women in mining to start with at that, you know, at the entry age 30 years ago. And so you're now seeing uh, seeing that change. But you don't need to have mining like people from the mining side. You see a lot of lawyers a lot of accountants a lot of uh, engineers and there's lots of women there and there's lots of people of of different backgrounds the other thing is mining is a global business and so people are now trading around their executives and so executives are on the move so you're seeing more diverse you know e-suites
2: all right well happy to hear those positive trends that you're pointing out in that regard But, but
3: those that aren't diverse are very visible
2: right yeah, and this, I, I guess that ESG principles are, ex, are are exposing them for what they're doing, right?
3: Yeah, not just that they're they're missing out in the talent war. If people can't see that they have the ability to move up in an organization, they self-select out. So if everybody at the C-suite is you know sixty years old and male, or sixty years old and female and blonde, whether it's real or not. <laughs> <laughs> then they will say, I don't look like that. I don't see a path for me.
2: Right. It's an important point, trivial as it might seem.
3: Yes, exactly. It's those visual cues that get people to stay or go.
2: Very interesting. Okay, well, talking about missed opportunities, do you think that the net zero imperative holds an opportunity for the industry to reinvent itself and uh, from your point of view you know how can the industry capitalize on cutting down emissions you know while still turning a profit so that's kind of a broad topic there but uh, what are your right
3: concerns? well first of all the net zero uh, transition as we as everyone is, is calling it it's going to be a longer transition than everybody is talking about you know net zero 30 mm, uh, 50 maybe maybe longer but uh, yes, in mining now, new businesses that are coming on stream, new operations, they need to think about what's the length of time that they have. Can they move to fully electrified now? Should they take that risk now? Does the economics of the deposit actually work for them? So, and, and I think that's what people are going to be doing. They're going to be looking at that. We all know that mines aren't necessarily found underneath a power line at the end of a paved highway. And so there's going to be a lot of uh, of issues that you have to take into into account. But we will have to slowly electrify. We will have to think about what of the principles, you know, for the su- sustainable uh, principles every company can work on. No one needs to deliver on every single sustainability principle. You need to think about what your company can do, and how to get there. You, you'll probably choose one, two, three things that you can actually accomplish. And so I think over time, mining has always been innovative when they had to. This is going to be one of the times that you have to, because you want to be able to have access to reasonable financing. Mm. And so that comes with strings on the ESG side today. But I think mining people are pretty smart. We'll move to electrification of vehicles. We've already started looking at recycling of water. There's going to be a lot more skills training, not only in uh, within their own companies, because things will be changing and digitizing and, and moving to, to uh, digital activities and robotics. And we'll see that kind of training into remote communities as well, so that mm. they can actively participate. So I think mining will get there, but it's going to be a bit of a bumpy journey because mm. let's face it we don't know what we're transitioning to we're transitioning to electricity but the same you know wind and solar are only part-time
2: yeah 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 it's a process
3: it's a process
2: well so uh, you've peppered uh, your previous comments uh, really with uh you know what I want to ask you next so it's a nice segue of sort but I hope you've got more things to say so you know uh, what would your biggest piece of advice be to companies currently navigating the green revolution. You know, it really presents a myriad of challenges, as we've already heard. You know, it's, it's a lot hinges on innovation, uh, creating new winners and losers. Um, you know, mm-hmm. from your point of view, what's the biggest piece of advice that companies can benefit
4: from?
3: Well, I wish I was brilliant. I just want to tell you that, I mean, we all know the world's changing, right? And it's changing on the macro side. We're going into a period of instability. We're getting into a world of two solitudes. Russia and China on one side and the rest of us on the other. That is going to change everything. Uh, we've already seen what it does to the oil and gas price. Also, oil and gas hasn't been, they haven't been exploring much lately because of the price changes a while ago. And the fact is, there's not a lot of people uh, financing them for that. So, what we can see is we're going to have oil prices move up. Digital growth, we talked about that. The other thing is on the last map, and I just want to say is. We're getting out of the boomer time and we're going into the millennial time. Mm. Fewer workers, fewer people who've been involved in the mining business. So there's going to have to, there's going to be a war for talent. There's a war for talent everywhere. There's going to be a big one in, in this particular business. So I would say that, you know, for mining, I would suggest that the most important thing is really focus on your risks. And if there's a way that a sustainability guideline or goal can help you address a risk, use it. Focus on what you can do. Don't focus on happy talk.
4: Mm. Really,
3: really focus on what you can do. You're going to have to have a more diverse workforce. You're going to have to train more. You're going to have to look at how you can interact with your communities better. And I would say also, given what's going on in the macro side, really think about diversifying your supply chain of key products that you need access to because we're going to have, we're going to have um, armed conflicts, I think. And that's a, a scary thing to, to say. But ultimately, what I see is, you know, 100 years ago, what miners did and what we do today and what we're going to do in 100 years, mining will always be needed. You're just going to have to really focus on how do you get the social license to do that. And you do that by being a good corporate citizen and uh, having well-trained people who love working for you.
2: All right. So uh, something that I've picked up uh, recently at industry conferences like the Indaba and at Viric is that, uh, you know, there's this incredible need to create, to find and develop new deposits of critical minerals, metals Mm -hmm. that we need for the new industry. But uh, a recurring theme seems like uh, to me is that ESG principles is like uh, shining a new spotlight on grassroots engagement between miners and communities. Have you picked up that there is a renewed sense of urgency to really create meaningful engagement with communities and a, a, you know, create, establish a just sharing of the mineral wealth uh, with these communities? Is that something that you're seeing more uh, relevant these days?
3: Yes, I I think what's happening is uh, whether you're looking at a grassroots exploration project or whether you're doing a bulk sample or even starting a mining project, what's happening now is that more and more of the communities, they want to understand how is this going to benefit us? Not just, yes, we want a job, but more than that. How is it going to benefit us? And quite frankly, this has been around and happening for over 50 years. What the problem is, I think, is the difficulty of getting anything permitted. And that is, it's, I don't think that's with the communities. I think that's with our government. And uh, and I think it's with governments everywhere now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people have to understand the importance of mining. And I think they're forgetting that. I think people do forget that if you can't grow it, you have to mine it. I mean, where do they think plastics come from? Where do they think, you know, it comes from, from oil. Where do they think uh, everything that they use in their cell phone, it comes from mining. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that is a problem. And until people understand that you can't just stir it up in a chemistry pot, right, uh,
4: right.
3: you have to actually mine it. I think there will be a better understanding for that. But right now our governments aren't helping.
2: Yeah, So yeah. we really
3: need to lobby for that.
2: Right, okay. Thank you very much for your time today, Maureen. That was the most informative discussion.
0: Maureen and Henry, a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Maureen. Thank you. And there you have it, another edition of the Northern Miner Podcast. Thank you once again for listening. And for all those people in Toronto, enjoy your PDAC. Don't forget to pick up your Northern Minor mega issue, our annual 64-page newspaper full of tons of interesting stories. And again, that's available throughout the convention. Visit us at our booth. We have a wonderful staff ready to say hi. If you'd like to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.